right. Well, again, welcome to Hope Lower Town. Just a, a matter of business, real quick. Um, we uh, are, are, if you're just checking out Hope, you're, you're visiting, welcome. This is just for uh, family here. Uh, you can listen, that's fine. Uh, but we are, uh, just want to give a, a quick uh, uh, update on just our, our giving. We, our fiscal year isn't until the end of June 30th, but um, December, uh, historically, we bring in about 21% of our yearly um, uh, finances come in in December. And so I uh, just want to kind of, you know, put that out there and say, hey, here's, here's kind of the goal that we need to kind of get back into the black and then uh, we'll fall back out <laughs> until we get to June. And, and that's okay. It's just kind of the rhythm that has been where we're at. So just want to put this number in front of you. And so that number of 21% is $45,000. This is just the Hope Lower Town. We have our own budget. We're completely independent, financially speaking, from uh, our other locations. Uh, and so just want to just throw this out there. So that number is 45000 This is the second week. And so uh, last year, uh, just about $3,500 came in uh, or 7.77% that, you know, some people joke like 777 is like a, a God number. Um, this is low. Okay. So this is not a good number. Uh, no, I'm kidding. It's, it's better than nothing, uh, which I'm grateful for. Uh, but obviously that number uh, needs to be more. And so just want to just put that in front of you. So those of you who are covenant members, uh, people who have been blessed by Hope Lower Town and our ministry, then we would love to encourage you to give. And if maybe you've never given, uh, I would love to just encourage you to maybe think about what you could give. We don't talk about tithe here at, at Hope. Uh, we really think it comes out of uh, just a generous heart. Uh, and if God has uh, uh, blessed you, uh, you're able to give, uh, then that is one way that we could do that. Uh, and again, 16 cents of every dollar goes back outside. We don't we don't just hoard it. We're not we're not trying to do that. We're not trying to build a kingdom. Uh, we want to build rivers. Uh, not a dam. Uh, we don't want to be keepers of an aquarium, right? We want to be fishers of men. And so uh, that, is, that is that. So if you're interested in giving, you can do that. Go to hopesc.com uh, slash giving, or there's a button for giving. There's a lot of ways you can give. Go on the app. It's right there. It's pretty, pretty simple. So we don't pass plates or anything. So if you have cash, just keep it. Uh, Merry Christmas to yourself. Um, so that is that. Let me go ahead and uh, jump into this morning. Uh, we are going to be kicking off kind of uh, the Advent season. And so last week, uh, Paul finished up uh, Romans. And so we're going to pause on Romans. I think that was week 36. And so uh, at the end of January, we'll pick back up in Romans chapter 9, uh, which I'm really looking forward to. But just for the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at this uh, Advent season and what we're calling Born Unto Us. So we're going to be looking at different birth stories, not just, not just Jesus. He is like the reason why we're all here, yes. Yeah, but there are other characters in, in the story that, that point us to Jesus, uh, that, that make us want to long for Jesus. And so we're going to be looking at one of those specifically this morning. Um, as I was prepping, I was, I was thinking about this idea of, of regrets. Um, and I'm sure we all, all have some kind of regret. And these are things that have, have long-term consequences, um, that, that, that maybe, maybe there's some guilt and shame maybe with part of it. And, and you know, maybe it's like, oh, I regret not investing in Apple in 1996 or, or whatever it is. Like that was, that was a big regret, um, which obviously if we could go back in time, we would all do that. Um, but what, what are some regrets? What are some things that we've done that we just, right? And, and I remember I was thinking, this is one thing that I think about a lot and it's just so stupid. This is so stupid. 
But when I, my senior year of college, I was playing football, which is not a big deal. It was a small D3 school. I don't care who you are. Every single one of you, if you would have tried out, you would have made the team. Um, I might not have played, but you would have been suited up. I'm just telling you, it wasn't that big of a deal. Uh, we didn't win one game all season. My whole senior year, we didn't win one game. And we normally got, I mean, annihilated. It was just, it was so, so bad that my senior year was awful. But I remember one game in particular, we lost by one point because we didn't have a kicker. Uh, why would we? Uh, we couldn't, uh, we didn't have one. In, and uh, all the kickers, they actually played like soccer. And, and we had a pretty decent soccer team at, at, our, school, at our college. And so we just didn't have any kickers, right? We, so we never could kick it. It'd be, it'd be fourth down uh, and then 30 on the, on the 40 yard line. I'm like, I guess we're going for it. You know, we're going we're gonna to figure it out. That's just how it was. Well, uh, if, you're, if you don't know football and you're like, I have no idea what you're talking about, that's okay. Don't worry about it. I remember it was, it was six to seven though. And it was the fourth quarter and the, almost over. And, and the other team actually went for it on fourth down and they ran an option. I played defensive end and, um, and they ran an option on my side and it was fourth and two or something. And they're coming right at me. And, and, I, and I do a move. Well, the, the quarterback, he, he goes to pitch the ball back to the running back and I swat it. And I swat it like 20 yards down, down the field. And here I am, right? I've got the football and I've got 80 yards in front of me. And I'm like, here we go. But, but I was trained to just fall on the ball. Right, you just fall on the ball. That's what you do. You you you, you just get on it. You don't want to lose the. Well, I, so I'm, I'm I swat the ball. I cause this fumble. I run over to it, and I and I fall on it, and I wait a good five seconds before someone comes. In, which in college you don't need to touch them, but I was down, right? And I'm ecstatic, right? I caused this turnover. I you know fumbled and recovered it by myself, and I'm pumped. And I go running over to the side, and I'm cheering. And I remember my defensive line coach just grabs me and I have a face mask, and he goes down in distance, silver. And I was like, what? I was like, oh, yeah, I should have scooped it and tried to scoop it and run for a touchdown. It's our ball anyways. I think about that stupid play all the time, right? I've got a regret. Of just, why didn't I just pick it up, right? I could have had my first defensive touchdown of my career, could have won a game for our school. Maybe this, they, they had canceled the football program the next year. Maybe we could have had it, right? Maybe, maybe we could have had it, right? Uh, that's, that's one. Uh, one regret I had this past year was I took my oldest son through the haunted house um, at the state fair. It just looked so cheap and, and whatever, silly. Went in and we made it about 10 feet and he was like, nope. And so I'm holding him, he's clinging to me and, and, it, and it looks like a small house. It was huge. It just went on and on and on and on, right? His long-term uh, uh, consequence of taking my six-year-old into a haunted house. Um, he'll never do it again, I'm sure. Um, and, but, and then maybe some of you have seen this tattoo of, um, no regerts, uh, tattooed on, on their forearm. It, this had to be on purpose, right? When I think about this, like th this had to be someone who was like, I'm going to make this ironic. Um, I hope, you know, maybe that's, that's what happened. No, no regerts. Um, and so today though, specifically, we're going to be looking at two, two different birth stories, specifically one of Cain and then also then of, of Jesus. And the first one, we're going to just see it's full of, of pain and suffering and, and regerts, uh, if you will. And another, though, while dealing with the consequences, while dealing with these long-term consequences of sin, and it, it does have elements of sadness, uh, but yet at the same time, just full of joy and joy to the world. So this morning, uh, the title of the sermon is Born Unto Us, the Sinless death defeater. We're going to be specifically looking at Genesis 4, 1 through 8, the account of uh, Cain and Abel, and then Luke 2, 8 through 20. But before we can jump into Cain, we got to go back to 
uh, what's commonly called the curse or the fall. And so Adam and Eve, they're created and God says it is good and, and, and everything is good in the world and there's no sin, there's no death, there's no dying, there's no pain, there's harmony between um, uh, husband and wife, there's harmony between uh, mankind, humanity, and their God. Uh, they walk with God in the cool of the day, it tells us in Genesis chapter 2. There's harmony between uh, humanity and the earth, that there's no, there's no natural disasters, there's no thorns, there's no weeds, it's just harmonious. And it's beautiful and perfect. And then, um, and then the temptation comes with the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And Adam and Eve are both there. And Eve eats of the fruit. And Adam is, is passively standing next to Eve while this all happens. And then sin enters the world. They break the one rule that Adam and Eve craved autonomy from their God, autonomy from their creator. Who are you, creator? Tell me what's right and wrong. Let me choose for myself what I think is right and wrong. And so I think it's right for me to eat of this tree. You don't get to tell me what to do. And then God comes in and there is a curse. And so in Genesis chapter 3, looking at verses 14 through 16, God curses the serpent. And he says this, So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, right? There's going to be now, now there's no longer any harmony. There's going to be enmity between you, this serpent, which later on we're going to know is revealed as, as the devil, as this ancient serpent, uh, as John puts it in the book of Revelation. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. And then you're going to see that the, that the pronouns are going to change it to a first-person personal pronoun. It's going to change not just plural offspring and heirs. Um, it's going to be now he, specifically singular. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. All right, there's, there's now, you, you, Satan, are going to do something. They're going to strike his heel, but he will crush your head. That is, that is part of this. It's what's commonly called the proto-evangelium, right? Just a Latin phrase, a Greek uh, intertwined there. Of, this is the, the first announcement of the gospel. That, that, that here it is, that someone is going to save humanity. He's going to defeat the devil and he's going to crush his head, but he's going to cause some pain in doing so. And so then we have then the curse on Eve, on the woman. And verse 16 says, to the woman, he said, I will make your pains and childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. This curse though, it may seem like this is just a painful delivery. And if you've experienced this, I've not experienced it, but I've witnessed it, right? It's painful, right? And I remember all three times my wife was giving birth, I remember in my mind, cursing Eve. You know what I mean? Like you had one job. You know what I mean? Like you, you could have saved my wife from having to go through this. But this is way more than just a curse on that singular act of birth. It's childbearing, child rearing. The whole idea of, 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 and again, as a man, I just don't, I don't think about these things at least as much. Um, that I don't, I don't. I don't have agony and turmoil over the fact of, of do I want kids? Can I have kids? Not that men are, are, are completely uh, removed from that kind of pain, but, but there's, a, there's a difference. And this, this comes, so it's the whole idea of, of can I have kids? Do I even want to have kids? Uh, um, um, and, and then when I'm pregnant, um, did I do something wrong? Did I eat that ham sandwich and it's going to cause some, some problems for my child? And then, then the child's born and you think, oh, now it's all good. Now we're, no, 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 there's so much tension and pain in raising a child. 
that comes from this, this curse. And then we have this phrase here that your desire will be for your husband. And that's not the only time that we're actually going to read the other time where that word is used in the book of Genesis. This isn't a good thing. This isn't that Eve is going to long and have a, a desire intimately for her husband. It's going to be, I want to I control you. I want to rule you. And it says that your desire will be for your husband and then he will rule over you. That he will, he will put you in subjection, which is, a, is, is part of the fall. That there's not this, this uh, co-laboring, that there's not this uh, complementary nature of male and female that works together. That it's that now that harmonious nature of their relationship is broken and sin even enters into their relationship. And so then we see then Eve in just the next couple verses brings a child into the broken world, into the sin-filled death-filled, sad-filled, unharmonious world. And Genesis chapter 4, verse 1 says this, Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. And she said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. The, the conjugation here in the Hebrew, and I'm not, a, I'm not a Hebrew expert, but every single commentary I've ever read um, says that Eve here is emphasizing that she thinks that this child uh, Cain is going to be the savior, right? She just heard the curse, maybe not just, but it'd been a while, but she knows the curse that, that there's going to be someone who's going to save the world from their sins. And she goes, here it is. Look how quick this was, right? God, God is going to save everybody. And that obviously is not the case. And if you can, which is hard to do, but imagine putting yourselves in Eve's shoes. Eve knew what it was like to live in a perfect world. Eve knew what it was like to walk and talk with her creator. Eve knew how amazing the universe could have been, but because of her and her husband's sin, now she's giving birth to a son that she knows will die. She's bringing forth suffering and pain. And just that those regrets that I would imagine she has She's now bringing this child into a broken and fallen and hurting world because of her and her husband's actions. How easy it would have been to just fix it or to not do it, but they didn't. They chose to sin and therefore they chose to suffer and the rest of us suffer with the brokenness of this world. It says in verse two, later she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept his flocks and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought forth fruits from the soil as an offering to the Lord, and Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from the firstborn of his flock. And the Lord looked on favor on the favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Now we need to be careful because when we read this, we're like, oh, of course, there's a, there's a sacrifice. There's, there's death involved and, and, and the shedding of blood. But I don't know how much they would have known of that. There was no Bible at this time. God uh, most likely wasn't communicating. Uh, we see that he is about to talk and he, he still talks with his, his image bearers. But how much did they know about sacrifices? And so, so I think Cain in this moment is doing his best. He's, I'm going to give you the best I have to offer. And yet it wasn't what God was looking for. And so you can see and you can hear it in God's voice when he talks to Cain. He's like, hey, pick your head up, right? We can, we can, you can make this right. Why are you so upset about this? I'm trying to teach you. I'm trying to coach you. I'm trying to discipline you. 
And it says, And the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, you will, will you not be accepted? But if you, do, but if you do, not, do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door, and here's that other word, and it desires to have you, right? It wants to rule you, it wants to control you. He says, but you must rule over it versus he will, the husband will rule over his wife. It's now different, but you must rule over this. You must control this. But sin is at your door and it wants to, it desires you. It wants to consume you. God gives Cain a way out. He gives him a way of redemption. It says, now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Again, imagine in those moments being Adam and Eve finding out maybe through word of mouth or through Cain himself coming and saying, I killed Abel. Imagine that, the, the, the pain, the agony, right? And, and Eve maybe thinking still that maybe Cain is the savior and, and yet you just now, or excuse me, Abel, or yeah, Cain was the savior and now Cain just committed murder. The pain that, that we, we caused this, the regrets, the guilt, the shame, all the things. And so now, though, what I want us to do is put ourselves in Mary's shoes, if we can, and that she's giving birth to a perfect son in a broken, fallen, sinful, death-filled world. And if she believes the prophecies, if she believes what the angel told her, that she knows the son is going to die for the sins of the world, that this child that she is carrying, about to give birth to, is going to die for her sins, right? Can you imagine being the mother of Jesus and you think something or you yell something out of anger and you go, wow, he's going to die for that sin I just said. I would imagine that would make you a pretty good person, right? And we have this now of Mary bringing Jesus into a broken world, but who one day is going to fix it. We sing the song during the season, Joy to the World. And one of the verses in there says this, No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow, and you know this, as far as the curse is found. It's such a beautiful phrase, as far as the curse is found, and everything, all the, the disharmony that we have between uh, humanity and ourselves and our relationships with one another, that we see wars all over the world, that it's in disharmony. He's going to fix this. He's going to bring harmony between ourselves, humanity, the image bearers of God, and our creator himself. And someday he will make all things new, as far as as the curse is found. We're going to be reading Luke 2, and we'll probably be reading this a lot over the next couple of weeks. And it's one of these, these passages that if you just are, are, have been around for a while, you, you probably know these words. You, you, you hear them all the time in songs, on the radio. You guys listen to the radio, I still do. Um, uh, whatever. And, and so we hear these, we're familiar with this story. But I want to I look at this in a little bit more in depth. And this is Luke chapter 2, verse 8, and it says, And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over the flocks at night. Years ago, I, I was talking to my wife, Angela, this last week, and I was like, I, I want to talk about this thing because I, I'm really passionate about this. I think it's really 
cool. Uh, it's, it's fascinating to look at this aspect of the birth of Jesus. And I was like, but I've talked about it before. I think it was like 2018. She's like, I think it's, I think it's been enough. You can probably bring it up again. I don't think anyone remembers that. So I'm going to, if you want to listen to the real sermon about it, go back to 2018. No one probably knows exactly what sermon it is. I do not, but it was Christmas 2018. But I want to point some things out here just, just briefly. There's a lot here, but I just want to point something out. Who are these shepherds that were living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night? Shepherds were not allowed in this region. Uh, and so they, they, you were not allowed to raise uh, sheep or any kind of flock anywhere between Bethlehem and Jerusalem. It was against the law. They weren't allowed to do it. So why are there shepherds with sheep right here outside of Bethlehem? Okay, so you had to do a little bit of homework, got to do a little bit of digging. And so in the Mishnah, which is kind of the Jewish extra biblical law books, it says, says this. They may not rear small cattle because they damage the sown fields in the land of Israel, but they may rear them in Syria or in the wilderness that are in the land of Israel. So outside of this area, of this region, you, yeah, then you can have sheep and flocks and cattle, all the things, but not in this region. They're, that's where our crops are being grown. Uh, we don't want the, the, the animals uh, that close to, to where we are and where we're living, Okay. Then also in the Talmud, it says cattle uh, found all the way from Jerusalem to Megal Adar. So you have Jerusalem, I'm not going to pull up a map, but you have Jerusalem and Bethlehem's not that far, but Megal Adar just means the watchtower of the flock. It's, it's highlighted a few times, this watchtower in Bethlehem. It's just a tower that shepherds would go up into and they could look out and see the sheep. And then in the basement of it was kind of the, this, this cleaner birthing center uh, for the sheep, okay? So from Jerusalem to Megaladar or Bethlehem and in the same vicinity in all directions are considered if male as whole offerings and if female as peace offerings. What's being said here in the Mishnah and the Talmud? Uh, here's the picture of this, uh, at least a watchtower. Um, what's, what's happening here? Now you have in this vicinity sheep and shepherds, but they weren't allowed to be there. But if they were there, they were temple sheep. They were sheep that were destined for temple sacrifice. Two times every single day, a lamb was killed and sacrificed in the temple, okay, in Jerusalem. So now you've got, I mean, thousands of sheep, a lot of sheep, and the shepherds would have been priestly shepherds. There were priests for everything. There were priests for getting water, and there were priests for cleaning pots, and there were priests for lighting the fire and stoking the fires, and there were priests that were shepherds that would have been maintaining and caring for their flock that was destined to be a temple sacrifice. William Barclay says this in his commentary, but these, these sheep, were in all likelihood very, or excuse me, the shepherds, were all in likelihood very special shepherds. We have already heard how the, in the temple, morning and evening, an unblemished land was offered as a sacrifice to God. To see that the, that the supply of perfect offerings was always available, the temple authorities had their own private sheep flocks. And we know that these flocks were pastured near Bethlehem. It is most likely that these shepherds were in charge of the flocks from which the temple offerings were chosen. It is a lovely thought that the shepherds who looked after the temple lambs were the first to see the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Okay, so just put that now into perspective. But these shepherds, all right, and this, we're going to have little kids up here dressed as, as shepherds, right? They're not going to be like, they're have little, little Pope hats. It's like, oh, I'm a pre-shepherd. That's confusing. Nobody knows what that means. Uh, and so, no, we're just, it's okay, right? Nativity scenes, they're, they're still cute. They're good. They're fun. It just might be a little bit different. 
okay? That maybe Jesus, maybe, we don't know for a fact, but maybe Jesus was born in the basement of this Magal Adar, of this watchtower of the flock, okay? Because again, now with that in mind, let me continue reading. It says, and there were shepherds living in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around, around them. And they were terrified, which is always what happens. When any, any human being sees an angel, they are terrified. Don't think angel with wings and a halo. Um, think wild creature, <laughs> okay? And, and they come and they say, and they start saying to him, but the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news. I bring you the gospel that will cause great joy for all people today. In the town of David, Bethlehem, a savior, has been born to you. He is the Messiah. He is the promised one. He is the chosen one, the Lord. Then he says this, this will be a sign to you. You will find the baby wrapped in claws and lying in a manger. Why is that a sign, right? That, how is that a sign that you're going to find a baby wrapped in claws lying in a manger? There would have been hundreds, if not thousands of mangers all around Bethlehem. How is this a sign? And how did the shepherds know where to go, right? What would happen in this basement of the Megal Adar when a, when a lamb, when a sheep was born, they were destined for temple sacrifice. And so what they would do is they would take a lamb and they would wrap it in cloth and they would lay it in a manger so it wouldn't try to walk on its own and therefore fall and scuff its leg or break a bone and therefore be unfit for temple sacrifice. And so they would they would wrap it and they'd put it in this trough, usually made out of stone, and they'd put it in the trough and they'd put it in this manger so that the thing would calm down. And once it finally calmed down, then they would let it, they would let it go. Think about that. Now that is a sign. And if I'm a priestly shepherd and I hear this will be a sign to you, you're going to find this baby, the Messiah, wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. That's a sign. Verse 13, suddenly a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. And when the angels left them and had gone to heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. And so they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger, right? That's the sign. They knew exactly where to go. Why? Maybe, maybe these were priestly shepherds who were in charge of the flock that was destined for the priests or for the priests that were going to be sacrificed. And when they heard of Jesus being born in a manger, wrapped in swaddling clothes, they knew exactly where to go and why it was a sign. I can only imagine if you were a shepherd, right? And you, and you knew the symbolism that was going on here, that you have this now a baby wrapped in, in claws lying in this manger that I would imagine maybe they, they ran, right? They sprint to this, this tower. They get into the basement. They see what's going on. And I would imagine the, the joy on their faces, but then seeing this, the sadness that I would imagine would have overwhelmed them of knowing that this baby was born to die just like every lamb they'd ever watched and cared for, that this was going to be the sacrifice, the Lamb of God that's going to take away the sins of the world. It says, and when they had seen him, they spread word concerning what had been told them about this child. Again, there's not a whole lot 
told them about this child. It's the Messiah, and he's going to be born. He's going to be wrapped in claws, lying in this manger. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. And again, you can imagine being Mary in this moment. Just giving birth to this child, this child that you know is going to die, the significance of this moment. And just knowing and realizing and having it set in that my baby, my child, has been born to die for the sins of humanity. Verse 20, the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they heard and had seen, which were just as they had been told. Now, I want to compare Cain and Jesus. We talked about this in Romans, and I don't expect you to remember this, but this idea of a typology. Now, what happens is, if, if, and the illustration I gave is that if you had a dog up here, and I showed you a picture of a dog, and I said, I want you to make some observations. You say, oh, it's a big dog. It's a furry dog. It has a tongue, whatever, right? It's kind of hard to make observations other than the Captain Obvious ones. But if you have a different breed, a different dog right next to it, you go, oh, this one has longer hair than that one. This one is softer than that one. This one has a more gentle demeanor than that one. You can make more comparisons, and that's what the whole point of a typology is. And so Cain, as, as bad as he was, points us and makes Jesus then just more. We just see him in a clearer sense. And so I want to uh, just look at, there's a gentleman, Jay Thomas, he uh, is a pastor in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and uh, he, he kind of came up with this um, and just looking at the difference between Cain and Jesus. And so I'm just going to read these and the comparisons of this typology of, uh, of Cain and Jesus. The first point is that Cain, uh, that he killed the righteous. Uh, and 1 John 3.12 says this, we should not be like Cain who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. And yet we see then the comparison between these two that Jesus was killed for the unrighteous. Romans 5, 6 through 8, passage we went through, I don't know, last year. No, I don't know, a while ago. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for the righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even die. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Cain was punished for his sins. In Genesis, again, 4, 10 through 13, the Lord said, Yahweh says, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. And when you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on earth. Cain said to Yahweh, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Regrets, constant guilt and shame. But Jesus isn't punished for his sin. He is punished for others' sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Cain, driven by pride, uh, from Genesis 4, 3-5, a passage we just read. But in the course of time, Cain brought to Yahweh an offering of the fruit of the ground, and also uh, Abel. Abel also brought to the first fruit of his flock and of their fat portions. And Yahweh had regard for Abel and his offering, but Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. Right? You can see Cain just, well, am I not good enough? Is what I brought not good enough? What else do you, what else do you want from me? And driven by that pride. And then Jesus, though, he humbles himself in Philippians 2, 5 through 8. It says, Christ Jesus, 
who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Cain hated his brother. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. But Jesus loved those who hated him. Colossians 1, 21 through 22, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled us in his body of flesh by his death in order uh, to present you holy and blameless above reproach before him. And then finally, Cain, given grace in spite of his sin, Cain deserves death. He deserves maybe some capital punishment in that time. And he says, if anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And Yahweh put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. But Jesus, we see that grace, he gives grace in spite of our sins, Romans 5.15. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, so much more that the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. There's an image uh, we have, uh, just a little little card that we have on our refrigerator at home. I took it off uh, because now it's in my bag. I was looking at it this week, and so remind me to put it back on the fridge because it's very powerful. It's a very powerful image. This is... Uh, um, drawn in crayon, <laughs> I'm assuming Crayolas, uh, from Grace Remington. She's a, 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 a nun at um, Our Lady of the, the Mississippi Abbey. I think it's in, in Iowa somewhere. Uh, is Iowa on the river? Sure. Uh, somewhere down there on the river. Um, and, and recently, I think it was 2004, 2005, something like that, um, that she, she drew this. And the symbolism in this image is... Ha. It is so powerful. You have Eve, right, covering her, her nakedness with her, with her hair. You have her looking downcast. She's, you can just feel the shame. But reaching out and holding Mary's hand on her womb, knowing that there is the promised one. Right, that Eve thought, oh man, this is my child. I've, I now have a savior, but it wasn't in for thousands of years. That her regrets, the pain and the suffering that Eve would have felt is now going to be fixed and healed to the womb of Mary. And you have Mary then just with her hand. It's this, this picture is called Mary Consoles Eve. And you can just see her comforting her sister. And the symbolism there of the serpent entwining itself around Eve's legs, but you can subtly see Mary standing on the head of that serpent. This is a powerful image of these two women. Uh, This nun also wrote, again, Grace Remington, she wrote this poem to go with it. It says this, My mother, my daughter, life-giving Eve, ah, excuse me, do not be ashamed. Do not grieve. The former things have passed away. Our God has brought us to a new day. See, I am with child, through whom all will be reconciled. O oh, Eve, my sister, my friend, we will rejoice together forever. 
life without end. That's the gospel. That is good news. And we are in this now, this moment, again, that theologians call this already not yet. That there is pain, there is suffering. We, we live in this disharmonious world where death and sin are here. But Jesus already won the victory when he crushed the head of that serpent. When he died on the cross, when he offers his blood, his body, to take away our sins to all who believe. We will rejoice together forever, life without end. And so we wait. We wait. In John chapter 1, maybe a passage we don't normally go to to recount the Christmas story. But John is starting his book. I, I think I may have mentioned this, but the, the, the show, The Chosen, such a good show. And you, and you have John, he's, he's sitting down, he's trying to write his, his story. He's recounting the story of, of Jesus and he's writing his gospel and he keeps going back, right? He, he, he keeps going back in the story, right? Okay, well, this is when Jesus was born. He's like, no, 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 we gotta go back further, right? And he starts to maybe give a history of the Israelites. And he goes, no, 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 it's gotta go back further. And he just goes all the way back to the beginning of time. And he says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning and through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life and the life was the light of all mankind. And the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And then verse nine says this, this is the advent, this is the Christmas story. And the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. In gospel application, glory to God in the highest, who gives us the one who will defeat death. And not just physical death, but spiritual death, as far as the curse is found. That Mary is able to console Eve, not because of anything that Mary did, but because of who Jesus is. Every week at Hope, we get a chance to remember this sacrifice. We get a chance to remember who Christ is. And we take these elements, and we have the wafer that represents Christ's body that was broken for us. We have his, uh, the juice that represents his blood that was poured out for us. That he says, this is my blood. This is my, a new covenant in my blood. No longer do we need to have these lambs in the temple that are going to be a sacrifice that will never take away sin. That I the creator of all things am going to be both just and demand justice and the justifier by my blood. Nothing else will suffice. I have to do this. And he humbles himself even to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so we get to remember this by taking these elements. And so you don't need to be a, a member of this church or any church for that matter, but if you're a follower of Jesus, if you're like, yeah, that, that King Jesus, that lamb who takes away the sin of the world, now that, that I want to remember with you. Uh, I would love for you to take these elements with us. Uh, the worship team's going to come back up. They're going to play two, two songs, two hymns. Uh, and so feel free to grab these elements as you see fit. Uh, pray, uh, repent, confess sin, uh, glorify God, worship him in this moment of Mary consoling Eve and remember the finished work of Christ on the cross for us, especially in light of this Advent season of remembering that this little 
child was born, wrapped in claws, and he was born to take away the sins of the world. Let me pray. The worship team will come and they will play a couple songs and we will take these elements uh, as they worship. Let's pray. Father, you are a good father. And in your divine wisdom and sovereignty and providence, that you saw fit not to redeem the world right then through Cain, but to wait until the fullness of time. Thousands of years, there's something about waiting, there's something about suffering that allows us to see our need for a Savior. And so God, those of us in this room, in this moment this morning, that we come and we take these elements, that we would remember that you are good, you are sovereign, you are gracious. And as we compare and look at Cain, who we are just like in so many ways, but Jesus is so much greater. He's far superior. And he is the only hope that we have in this fallen world for our broken sinfulness and our dead souls. So God, quicken us. Make us alive this morning in you as we remember the finished work of your son on the cross. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.